Mariana and and that little bit of the connection of Christ that represents as well. So I'm going to start with guests. So we have Maria, right? Maria works with Amy Hamilton, and and this is I'm sorry, is this an elegant sacred heart or this is the it's it's both. Like, you do both with your care? So Maria and Amy are educators who train our children in a catechesis of the Good Shepherd, a beautiful program, which we understand was very influenced by study of the Hebrew scholar at one point. So, so thank, welcome. Yeah. I believe that there's a home group here in Force. So raise your hands if you're part of the, the Hope group. So PJ and Gino and Melinda. And, all right, well, welcome. Um, Gino is pastor of Hope Chapel, um, and most of, most of us here are Hobites, uh, which is really fun. Um, Jennifer, you're joining us today. Welcome. You've never been here, I don't think. Have you? I have. You have? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's lovely to see you. And Churchill. Welcome, Churchill. Very good. And the rest of you here were yesterday, so. So yesterday, Orna was our teacher, and Orna transformed our living room into a tabernacle, which was very, very interesting, and I'd never seen a 3D representation like that. And she talked about the tabernacle as, um, as God's model for worship and healing, and it was a very beautiful, wonderful day, um, and I recommend that you listen to it if you can, but it was so visual, it might be hard to listen to. <laughs> so Orna has a... Um, as a book as well, and so we were very blessed by Orna's teaching yesterday. Today, Mariana will speak. Orna and Mariana are friends. They live in Israel. They <coughs> both work with widows and orphans. They both have a heart of mercy. Um, but that's not how I first met Mariana. Um, that was not my first meeting of Mariana. I heard about Mariana before I ever met Mariana. I heard about her from a Catholic priest. Mariana is not Catholic. Mariana is a Jew. Both. Both Orna and Mariana are Jews. They both are believers in Yeshua, so they are sisters. But um, I heard about Mariana through Father Peter Hawken. And we went to a, um, a group in Austria that is led by Father Peter Hawken. And it's a group of, of Mariana's the youngest by far, I think, in the group, aren't you? Yeah, you're the youngest. <laughs> it's a group of mostly older people. We're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> we're on the other side too. We're, we're on the cusp. We're, we're the young crowd. We're the, we're the youth representatives. <laughs> but these are intercessors, and and they're very beautiful, wonderful intercessors in, in Europe. And um, and I wondered, kind of what it was exactly that this group did, and why we were here, and then Mariana explained this group to me. She said, we are a group that finds the dark places in history and hangs out there. <laughs> oh, so they're vampires. Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, and, and then it made, made more sense why we um, had been grafted into this group. So I wanted to um, pick up on something that Mariana said yesterday about wells, about ancient wells, and something that Gino said today at Hope Chapel about words. Gino talked about the power of words to, to wound. Um, 
And sometimes those wounds last a very, very long time. Well, there are some words that have been said in history that have started wars. There are some words that have done unimaginable damage to large groups of people. And there are some of those words that have been spoken by Christians, followers of Jesus. And when that happens, um, there is division that happens in the body of Christ. There's division that happens in the world. There are, there are lives that are lost and damaged. And so Mariana talked to us about digging out um, these wells. And I feel like that's something that's, that we are called to in Christ the Reconciler. We are a group of Christians, Protestants and Catholics, and sometimes we are graced with Jews, and we pray someday we'll be graced with Orthodox Christians who love Jesus deeply. We not only love Jesus, we love the church. We love the church, and we love our traditions, and yet we're grieved by, these, by divisions in the church. And... Um, and so, as Orna said yesterday, um, in order to move on to, to the glory of God, we have to go through a process of repentance and forgiveness. Um, and Orna spoke about how it's really that, that many, many Jews consider Christians, and particularly Catholic Christians, to be the greatest enemy of their faith. And she talked about how healing it can be for a Christian to simply acknowledge, my people have killed many of your people, and we are guilty of anti-Semitism, and we are deeply sorry. And, and that's a very, very healing thing. Today I was at Hub Chapel, and I was speaking with um, a friend of mine who said, I don't understand why you're Catholic. I don't get your draw to the Catholic Church. But when I come to your place, I feel peace, and I feel love, and I like you. <laughs> um, but, but part of what enables us to have dialogue is the fact that, that you know, I, I've talked to him about our trip to Rome, and, and, the, and, and, and I, as a Catholic, am grieved over the, the selling of indulgences, which led to the Reformation. This grieves me, and it's something that needs to be repented, it needs to be owned by Catholics, it needs to say, we are sorry, and the sin has caused great division and great pain. Um, the Lutherans in the Wittenberg meeting have, have um, owned Luther's anti-Semitism, and so this is something that was very evil that's in our history, and um, contributed to uh, the Holocaust that was allowed to happen. So there are things in all of our wells that are great impediments to unity. And so at Christ the Reconciler, we love the church, we love to worship, we love to pray, but we also hang out in these dark places. <laughs> and that's our special grace. And so I'm very thankful to, <laughs> to Mariana for giving voice to that. That's what we do, yes. <laughs> um, so that's really, I, I just wanted to give that little introduction to um, to Christ the Reconciler, to our connection with Mariana. But Mariana has many gifts besides, um, uh, besides intercession. She is a wonderful teacher. A minister to, to youth and children. Um, and she'll tell us a little more about that, I think. But anyway, come on, Mariana. <laughs>
thank you for your welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's sometimes it's it is helpful to dwell in deep dark places. And I'm um I was born and raised in, in Russia, and Russians are known to be sort of dark and twisted a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> morbid place. It's quite natural for me. <laughs> I don't want to be shallow ever. So it just requires diving in. I'm ready to dive. Um, but the going there occasionally to visit is a good, a good thing. Uh, dwelling there is a problem. And I also know some, some believers who kind of go there and dwell. But I think we are called to dwell in the light and then enjoy and dip and, in the dark. and in very, very deep victory. Amen. That's, that's our place where we belong. Um, Amy, sa Amy said that I'm a, uh, I'm a good teacher. I don't consider myself a teacher. Orna is definitely a teacher. I'm more of a um, prophetic leader. I like to stir up things and leave. <laughs> <laughs> much what I do. And when I, uh, I also believe that uh, understanding is a little bit overrated. Uh, so uh, it's kind of whether or not the audience understands everything that I felt the Lord placed on my heart is not hugely important to me. So, <laughs> it's a confession here. Uh, that's why we will have questions and answers in the end, and um, I hope the Lord will shed more light if, if anything is unclear. However, another little uh, paraphrase before I go in. Uh, this is a new topic for me, what I'm going to deliver to you. And I believe that I have limited re revelation on that. I prayed, I, I asked the Lord to reveal things. Yesterday I kind of felt that I have absolutely nothing. This morning I spent more time with him and I believe that I have something. But there's so much more, infinitely more. So if anything, the Lord like hooks your spirit with anything, I just want to encourage you to, to dwell and meditate on whatever is unclear. Because in my um, church, church tradition, where I was trained, the charismatic evangelical world, um, we don't really like going into places that are not clear. So whatever we don't understand, we kind of push it aside and focus on things we do understand. If there is something that just hooks your spirit and you have no idea why, just roll it in your spirit. And the Lord produced in my life amazing fruit from things I don't understand. And I still don't understand, but there is like all of a sudden I'm reading something in the scripture and I'm in tears. Why am I in tears? What this verse means? I have no idea. But if I'll keep rolling it, eventually this, the fruit of it is growing. So um, I was born in Russia, as I mentioned. I live in, in, in Israel for the past um, 18 years. The Lord called me from St. Petersburg, Russia when I was a young very young woman, I was just 22 when he first spoke to me, I said no. He said go to Israel, I said no, it's hot, it's noisy, and it's a lot of warfare, I'm not going there, I'm doing well. 
And uh, we had that kind of conversation back and forth going for another year and a half, and then I packed my stuff and moved. And for a little while, I felt that I'm a hero of faith and God owes me. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done him a big favor, and now good things are going to start happening in my life. Uh, how, however, now I know he didn't see it quite that way. <laughs> More than that, I know that with everything that happened in my life and the way he led me, there was nothing better. There's no other place. There is no other time, no other calling, no other ministry that is more perfect for who he created me to be. And I'm forever grateful that he never listens to my objections. Right. <laughs> um, for the first nine years in Israel, I lived in Netanya. It's on the coastline. Uh, um, in Israel, between Tel Aviv and Haifa. And then the Lord asked me to move to the desert. And he moved my spirit very deeply. I was visiting a friend in the desert, and he has, um, uh, he has a property, he put an installation there, a beautiful sculpture, uh, called the Fountain of Tears. If you ever in Israel go to the place called Arad, there is this installation, it's powerful. It is, uh, it's talking about the relationship between the crucifix, between the cross and the Holocaust. It's a huge taboo to address it like that. You can only address it like that in art. You cannot say it verbally because people will stone you. But he has this dialogue there and it's expressed in art. Five last words of Yeshua on the cross and the Holocaust survivor relating to that. Uh, and this, this property is right on the edge of the desert. Uh, and I wanted to see how what is out there. So this man opened the gate for me. And I looked outside. And I physically heard the desert crying out for the Lord to return. I am not crazy. But that was a very strong experience. And I was standing there. And I realized that the work of preparation in the desert, in the physical desert of Israel, has begun. And the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, this is time for the servants of preparation to gather in the places of preparation. And those places, they're different for all of us. For me, I immediately knew that he's talking in the desert. For some of you, it's some other things, but I believe that the Lord is shifting his servants. He's moving them around to put us strategically in the places of preparation. And those of us who consider ourselves the servants of this final season of preparation, now is the time to be placed and ready in our places and waiting. We know... <clears throat> In the scripture, there, uh, there are amazing verses that talk about the, both the bridegroom and the bride coming out of the desert. So for them to come out of the desert, the wedding parties need to gather there and wait. So I believe our community is doing exactly that. We're in the desert, not so far from the city of Beersheba, very close to the ancient well of Abraham, and we're waiting. Uh, this place where the Lord put us next to the well of Abraham is a strategic place as well. Um, I, it, it, I'm, I'm still processing, I don't understand a lot about, about that place and why, uh, but our community spends uh, time there praying. Um, it's an old site, it has this ruins of the old city. Um, and the actual side of the well that uh, archaeologists say about 90 plus percent certainty that this is one of the seven wells that, the Abraham, that Abraham dug. 
Uh, and 90% for the scientists is a lot. We can say pretty much for sure that was is. Uh, it's very, very deep. It's, if you throw a rock there, it takes about 20 seconds for the rock to hit the ground. Uh, how they did it is mind-blowing. Okay, we say like a couple of meters of, of dirt, right, is above. So it was a little bit less deep, but still. No, no tools, no nothing. They dug this very, very deep well. At the moment, it does not have good water in it. It has a little bit of water on the bottom, but no, it's not a good drink, uh, drinking water. And then on the other side of the same site, there is something um, <clears throat> that is called water cisterns. Uh, when, so, when the first people told me about water cisterns, I imagined a cistern. It's nothing like a cistern, it's like a, a cave in a series of caves and you walk around them and, that they, and they have, um, oh, how do you call it in English, like this white thing that you put on the walls to seal them. Whitewash? A whitewash, yeah, it's whitewashed. Um, in, in, it's deep and the acoustics are beautiful and outside is very hot, so we worship there often. <laughs> and the first time we kind of had idea to come and worship, we were absolutely blown away with the fact that this, this obscure little place in the middle of nowhere is full of angels. And those of us who could see them saw them, those of us who could feel them felt them, everybody felt that this is an unusual place with unusual kind of presence. We were struck with great fear of God and awe there. And then I realized that they're not just there to worship with us, they're there to be commissioned. So we go there quite often and sending them out to different places and communities and um, whatever, however the Spirit is leading us. Um, and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, why, why is that? You know, why would angels hang out underground next to the city of Beersheba? Even Israelis don't go there. Tour groups, almost never they bring them to Beersheba. What, why is this place full of angels? And the Lord said to me, this is very deep ground. It's on the ground level. It's below all the dirt that, of ages that accumulated there. This is ground zero for Christian faith. This is ground zero for Jewish faith. This is the home of Abraham, our father. He's the father of the nations. He's my father. He's your father. This is where we can come together, come back home. This, uh, this summer, we had a group of young adults from the nations, from every denomination uh, in many different nations, uh, coming to, to Israel for a retreat. And we, I took them down to the cistern, and we had a time of prayer and worship. And then the, those young people started declaring that the God of Israel is their God. And they would say, from behalf of my people, South Korea, I declare, God of Israel, and they went like this, and it was just goosebumps all over, and it was so powerful, and the realization that we went so deep, so deep, that we're at the very foundation of our faith, and our, our feet are standing on ground zero. And it's an awesome thing. And this is part of the reason why this well is so important, because it was our father, our father dug it. Our Father drank water from it. If we're looking for this deep place of legacy, deep place, this deep inheritance, it doesn't go further than that. This is where it ends. 
when we were praying about our time here in Austin, uh, we, were, we were doing two conferences, two seminars, Orly and I, one in Jacksonville and one in Austin. Um, and the Lord showed me a picture and he showed me Austin as a will. And I'm not talking in general as a city, I'm talking the body of Messiah. And it was, there were like several wells actually, and there was a deep well that is a common well that the city, the body of Messiah of the city, has been digging. And this desire for deeper things, for foundational things, for something that is going to last, to come into our spiritual inheritance fully, that is something that is, that I saw in the spirit as a marking for this community. Uh, so I said, I said to Orna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into the scriptures, I'm going to do my research, I'm going to see what the Bible says about the will, and I want to present it to these people. So um, here we are, this is the results, the results of the research. The will uh, is a source of life. We know it. Um, and here in Texas, you would probably understand it more. If I would talk about it in Oregon, they would be like, uh, we have water, there's rains, we have rivers and stuff. You go deeper into the deserty places. You don't have a well, you die. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not just a symbol. It's a very real thing. And we have, we have several scriptures that have to do with that. Uh, the very first mention of a well is actually connected to life and death. It's uh, the well first mentioned in Genesis uh, 16. Uh, verse 13, uh, 13 and 14, and it's the story of Hagar, the first time she was kicked out, when she was pregnant. And um, that's the first time the word Be'er, well, appears in the Bible. Uh, she, and, the Lord, and it's her words. She says uh, that she's digging the Be'er, and she's going to call it Be'er, the, the well of the man who sees me. The second mention of the well also has to do with Hagar. And it's, this, it's a very interesting story. It's from Genesis uh, 21. And Hagar and uh, Ishmael, they're kicked into the desert. They're out there. Uh, they, they, uh, Abraham gives them a bottle of water. Um, the water is gone. She knows that this is it. And, uh, and I know, you know, in, in, even now in Israel, I'm, I'm running my errands, right, in, uh, out in the city, and I'm thinking, oh, well, it's going to be just an hour. I'm not going to take my water bottle. And it lasts a little bit longer, you know, it's not an hour, maybe two hours. <coughs> I dehydrate. In two hours, I have a headache. Uh, it's very fast. So she, she knew that it's bad a bad thing, that they don't have water anymore. She knew that they're going to die now, so she says, I'm not going to watch my baby die, my, my boy die. He's not a baby. Probably preteen, something like that. So she puts him under the bush, moves away from him where she can't see him, sits sits down, and it's, it's a horrible, it's a heartbreaking scene, and she's getting ready to die. Um, she already has promises. God gives her promises when the first time when he yeah. sees her with a love. These promises don't matter nothing. She she will not have, it's not gonna have her life. <laughs> so. It, it, that's basically it. Unless you're alive, right. the big promises don't really matter. And then the Lord opens her eyes 
and she sees that she's sitting next to the well. It was all along there. How often do we do that? And we're starving spiritually, and we're right next to the well. And I, I know so many believers who are like that, and I've been to that place. Every once in a while, in this, in, there's a season in my life when I feel all dry, and I feel this is it, I'm like, I'm dead. All of the promises, my calling, anything, nothing matters anymore, I'm dry. And I'm sitting right next to the well, but unless the Lord opens my eyes, I don't see it. And I think it's very often it also happens with believers who are looking for the deeper roots of their faith, deeper wells of their ancient wells, and they're right next to it. They just need to tap into it, but unless the Lord opens your eyes, your heart is locked to it. Um, this is uh, one of the stories that we have with the, where the well is a source, with a source of life. Uh, the well is also a source of wealth. Uh, for a person to dig a well at that time in the desert, he needs to have lots of people to do it. You cannot do it alone. It's impossible. And you also need to have ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and you also need a small army to defend your well. Because people come and they throw rocks and they throw dirt and they would kill and you will they would steal your well and you will have an argument with them, many arguments, and they would say, No, it's our well, even though your servants just dug it. We've seen this in the in the, in the Bible over and over again. You need to have power, you need to have authority, you need to have strength, you need to be a wealthy man to have a well. Um, and after you, and the more wells you have, the wealthier you are, because each of them need to be guarded, each of them need to be need to be dug. It's also the need to have many wells means that you have multiple flocks, not just one, but you have many. Um, we uh, have the story there with first Abraham and Abimelech, or however you call him in English. Uh, Abimelech. Abimelech. Well, whatever. That, that guy. Abimelech. Abimelech. That one. <laughs> yes, so we have first Abraham and Abimelech. Then we have Isaac and the same Abimelech. <laughs> then we have Isaac and the herdsmen of Gerar. Um, and we have Isaac and Philistines. And all of the story that with money exchanging, power exchanges, um, basically Abraham had to pay Abimelech twice for the same land. The land of Beersheba was purchased twice. Um, it was kind of a little bit of a Middle Eastern dialogue going there, and uh, they were, um, like, sometimes in the, in, in, in the Middle Eastern culture, sometimes before you get to the point, it takes, like, you take many large circles. Uh, somehow Israelis lost that particular culture in the, in the diaspora. We came back and we're like, straight to the point. <laughs> but if you, I, I have some dealings with Bedouin people and they're very, very sweet. The culture is, is beautiful. Uh, but it's, it's, a long, it's a long conversation. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this is the type of conversation Abraham is having with Abimelech. Mm -hmm. and, and how are you doing? And remember this and remember that. And by the way, what are these seven sheep that are wandering around here? Oh, I prepared those to make a covenant with you. You know, it's, 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 
and then he purchases that very well next next to which I'm I'm living. Uh, well is the source of community, and that's something that Orla was also pointing out the other day. Um, the walled cities, they have a, the gate. At the gate they will have judges and they would have uh, people gathering to discuss things that would be at the gate. So if you want to meet someone, if you want to see how someone is doing, a little bit of gossip here and there, you go to the, to the gate. Uh, if the city doesn't have a gate, and most of the people that live in the area where I live, they were shepherds and they were nomads. They were traveling. Even their cities, like the city of Beersheba that is there, that is mentioned in the Bible repeatedly, is not really a city where people lived. It had uh, storage, it had worship, it had a few facilities to help shepherds it's who would come. And it was not, no, they didn't live there. There are no houses. And there are no walls. Uh, it's a service place. Um, but it did have a well, and you would come to the well to uh, see what's going on and uh, talk to people and w give water to your flock. And we have several stories that are very prominent in the Bible about that. We have Rebecca that met uh, the man who came to connect her with her future husband at the well. And we have Rachel who met her future husband at the well. Uh, both of those stories are very dramatic, very interesting stories. I enjoyed reading them because with, with Rebecca, uh, the, her readiness is amazing. I understand that at that time uh, women didn't have much choice in the matter, but somehow she seems to be very excited that, that they're going to take her to a guy she's never met in her life. And uh, so excited when she first sees him, she falls off her camel. Like, what? <laughs> and then, uh, on the other hand, we have like this one is falling off her camel, and the uh, and with with Rachel, uh, it's uh, Jacob when he first sees Rachel, and he like goes straight to he gives her a kiss. It's like, hello, I'm Jacob. Give me one, hello. They kissing, and then he starts weeping. <laughs> Because he's so deeply moved by her, this is this is amazing introduction. These people have this instantaneous connection that is apparently for Jacob is like an earth-shattering kind of event. Um, both of those happen at the well, and the Abraham's servant uh, is is also checking out the situation with Rebecca and talks about her family and this and this with other people who are also at the well. Uh, and then we have a very famous New Testament encounter of a uh, Samaritan woman and Yeshua at the well of Jacob. Uh, we have records in the Bible of uh, both uh, Abraham and Isaac actually digging wells. We do not have anything about that in the scriptures about Jacob, but obviously he's, he's done that because Yeshua then meets with a Samaritan woman at the well again. And he comes there to sit and rest, and, it's, and it seems like, I, when I was rereading the passage, it seems like he had a sense of a divine appointment, because he comes there and he waits. He doesn't go out with his disciples, they're going out to have some food and something. He sits there and he waits for this woman that opened up amazing doors for the gospel and started spreading it around. So it's, uh, it's also an interesting situation. And, um, and he says to her, this is also this theme that is important, uh, appears also in, in this passage, 
um, John 4, he says to her, whoever drinks uh, of this water, very soon they'll be thirsty again. And how I told you, you know, two hours you dry. So very soon they will need another drink. Whoever drinks of me, not only that they would not be thirsty, they themselves are going to become sources of living water. And it's, it's very interesting, and I will come back to it in a few minutes uh, to me, but it's, it's this transformation that happens with Yeshua that will not happen with drinking from a well, no, no matter how deep the well is, it will not make you into the source of living water. It can connect you to something very special. It can refresh you. Remember the story of King David, right? Yeah. He wants this a particular water from Bethlehem so much that he risks the lives of his men. And they go and they go into battle to bring him a drink of water from Bethlehem. And when they do, he gets so convicted that he can't even drink it. And he pours this water as a precious offering to the Lord. And you don't pour water as an offering. You have oil offerings and wine offerings. And you have blood. But this water, because it became almost like blood because of the risk. But his desire for that well was so strong because these are his roots. This is his connection. This is what we're talking about here. Like, why is this image of the well is so important to most of us, and it stirs our spirit, because it talks about more than just the well. It talks about our heritage. It talks about our history. This particular this connection. That what I'm willing to risk life for. Um, but even that water would not turn us into the source of living water. Uh, uh, I'm already mentioned several times that the well, wells have to do with the wells of heritage, the wells of um, legacy. Um, there is a very interesting uh, thing with Isaac redigging the wells that his father dug. And it's, I don't know if it's less difficult or more difficult to actually clean an existing well than to dig a new one. But they were cleaning those wells because they had all kinds of stuff in them and some was purposefully spoiled, some by Philistines, some probably just with time or abandoned. Uh, he's redigging his father's wells and he's naming them with the original names his father named him with. Uh, and that image touched me too because very often in my life I try to reinvent something of my of my own tradition and my own heritage reinterpreted, reinvented, and name it a different name because I was not comfortable with the name that my fathers gave it. And I think there's something very beautiful in the way that Isaac, whose relationship with Abraham was not with Abraham was not all that good by the way. Um, the whole, I'm going to sacrifice you on the altar deal didn't really work very yeah. well with Sarah, not very well with Isaac. Uh, it, had, it, had a, it was costly. That, that kind of obedience was costly for, for Abraham's life. Uh, but he's restoring this, this heritage by redigging those wells and cleaning them up from stuff that fell into them and renaming them back the names that their fathers gave them. Uh, the father gave them. Uh, Redigging the wells 
Physically, we understand what it means. Um, we had in our country house back in, in, in Russia, we had this old well that needed to be cleaned because it was only summer house and we were only there in the summer. So every spring, we had to go there and uh, someone had to go down there and dig and clean and also some kind of chemical thing was used to, to purify it again. Um, one time I fell into that well when I was little. I was clumsy. <laughs> but they, they had to dig me out of there too. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, but the spiritual aspect of that, if we're talking about here's a well, and the well is my tradition, my, my heritage, my own, the deepest part of my own spirituality, the enemies come and they throw stuff right. into it. Right. And unless we're vigilant, and unless we're careful, we will think that it's all okay. Yeah. And the stuff that is swimming there and it's poisoning that water is not going to get fished out. It has to be examined. It has to be purified. And the well itself can be beautifully made and very deep, but it has to be cleaned, examined, and purified. And it happens with old traditions and it happens with new traditions. And sometimes those things, they sneak in and they happen really fast. I remember years ago in a Messianic congregation in St. Petersburg, we had a Torah scroll. You know, many Jewish communities will have a Torah scroll. And uh, at the service, you pass the Torah scroll around and you sing and you dance with it and you celebrate the Word of God. And it's all very lighthearted and beautiful. So we're singing and dancing with the Torah scroll, and next to me is a group of old ladies. They're looking, uh, all, you know, Russian-looking with little hands on I'm like, hello, where are you from? And, uh, they came from, from, from a Pentecostal church. Because they've heard that in the service in the Messianic congregation, they pass around a pillow, pillow that was embroidered by blind people. And this pillow, if you touch it, it heals your eyes. Oh. Uh, so they came for the service to wait, wait for the embroidered pillow to be put sure. on. Um, and that was our Torah scroll. Um, and they were touching it in hope that their eyesight would be restored. Um, no one ever intended for that particular use of the Torah scroll to be implemented. Uh, the, our pastor was horrified when I told him. He like. He, he couldn't wait till the next service to start announcing that this is not a pillow, it's not embroidered by black people, it's not going to change your eyesight, you know, all of these things. But even new traditions get polluted like this. And I actually think that the amount of pollution is only a matter of time. Like if you give, uh, if you give the, the newest church stream a thousand years, it's going to generate heresies. It's just because, it's just the way that we are. We like to have interesting, exciting additions to simple things. Every well needs to be purified and examined. We need to look what we have in there. We need to check our beliefs and, and clean things out. Um, in the category of the well belonging to heritage, I have this very mysterious passage that I love, and it's one of those passages that always does something in my spirit. I have no idea what it means. So here it is. Uh, the people of Israel congregated. Moses is there. He, oh, 
he shows them the well and then he sings a song. And the song goes like this. Okay, this is Numbers 21, verse 17 and 18. Uh, the Lord says to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, and all of you sing to it. The well the leader sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staffs. It's impossible to dig a well with a staff. It's, 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 it's talking about something else. A staff is a symbol of authority. Orna told me that actually Derek Prince was teaching that um, for Moses, his staff was the word of God. And when he raised it up, you know, things were happening. And um, it's possible that every, everybody's, like the authority, the staff of spiritual authority is the word of God. But something happened there that is connected to the law, to law, to nation's elders, the nobility of the nation have done that. Uh, the elders in their authority that opened up that well that Moses and the people of Israel sang over. Um, I will faithfully meditate on this verse until the Lord shows me what it actually means. <laughs> but it's an exciting song. Uh, and now I'm coming to the actual point that that's what I discovered to be true. But I, uh, I suggest to you, if this topic touches you, to examine it and see maybe you will discover something else. Um, this is what wells are. They have to do with wealth. They have to do with life. They have to do with heritage. They have to do with uh, our tradition, our life and tradition. Here is what the well is not. It's not God. God is not a well. And he speaks about that specifically. He says in Jeremiah verse two, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Two sins have my people committed. They forsook, forsook the source of living water. Then mm -hmm. that's me. Uh, God says, says that. Building broken wells. Right? So they literally, literally what he says is this, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold, that can't hold no water. In Hebrew, the translated cistern is actually Be'er, it's the, the uh, well. Um, so he's not a well, he's a stream of fresh water. He's not man-made. He's not determined by us. We cannot control him. We don't know how exactly he will flow. We have to submit to where he goes and how. He's not a well. And a well is a beautiful thing and it's a life-giving thing. It's not God. Yeshua says, whoever drinks of me, I will turn him also into a source of living water. So this is the exchange that only Yeshua brings into our life. Not only that we touch living water, we become living water. This is the different kind of priesthood, not the one that creates a, an atonement, not the one that creates a covering for our sins, but the one that transforms us into itself. 
And in uh, Revelations chapter 21, 6, we're talking about, God is talking about the fountain of living water. No payment, right? And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give, give off the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So, uh, Isaiah also has this thing, right, of the fountain of living water and people can come and drink with no, no money. And this is, this is who God is. He's the fountain of living water. He's not the well. So when we look for our wells, when we dig our wells, when we defend our wells, when we purify our wells, it's important for us to remember they're not God. And that particular confusion started wars and it's bred division that spread around because when we think that our tradition, our own spirituality, our own revelation is God, we will fight for it and we will kill for it. When we know that He's out there and I do not control Him, I do not possess Him, I cannot change the way He flows, it humbles us. The one, it's a fresh, it was a fresh revelation for me that I'm going to share with you, and I think it has a parallel with what we're talking about right now. Um, it's the story of the tabernacle that Orna showed us yesterday, how it looked, versus the temple. Mm -hmm. And the tabernacle is the original form of worship presented by God to us. Moses has actually seen it in heaven, or in, in a vision, he's seen it. So he was able to copy it. It exists in heaven, and Yeshua is walking among the uh, furnishings of this tabernacle right now. Mm -hmm. King David loves God. He's a man of huge passion. God loves King David. David King David doesn't have warmth. You know, nothing sort of in the middle is in his, his vocabulary. It's either all the way up there, all the way down here. And God can relate to that. He's a man of great passion. He loves God. He's a real worshiper. He's also a very manly man. He's a guy. And he does war and he does adventurous things. And he's, you know, he's a guy. And he says his heart is is ignited on fire quite easily. Um, he believes that now when he has a palace, uh, God should have a palace too. So he is all sad that he has a palace and God has no palace and that needs to be redeemed. Um, and God sends pro prophet uh, Nathan to him, uh, to David, to talk to him about this idea. And he says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I, will show, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is he talking about? 
David thinks he's talking about his physical son. And he gets even more excited, and he goes, you, who, my son is going to build this temple for me, for my God. He starts collecting things to materials, building materials. On the way to do that, he actually sells four cities to buy wood from Lebanon. In the Bible, exchanging land, giving up land, is a no-no. You don't do that. We don't have a biblical precedent where it ends well. This land is not Israel's, it's God's land. The boundaries that he set, his boundaries. And it's a very problematic truth for today. We struggle with that truth daily. Because as a nation, we so wish we could buy peace with land. We so wish Israeli children don't need to run to bomb shelters, wouldn't need to do that. We can, if we can only give up land, there is no precedent that points to that strategy ever working. So David exchanges land for wood. And then he buys gold. And then he acquires a lot of earthly possessions to erect a beautiful temple. And, and then he passes, and then Solomon works and works and works, and then they have this temple built, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is the holiest thing the Jews ever had, and it doesn't fit. They bring it into the Holy of Holies, and it does not fit. And they have to turn it around, and it sticks out, because they could not bring this holy presence into the place they built for. And even that they don't take as a sign. And thank God, I'm always amazed by it, but in God, somehow plan B is always more glorious than plan A. And he shows up. I believe it was never his intention to have a temple. But he shows up anyway, because he loves his people. And that's why when people tell me, oh, this church must be doing very well and their doctrine must be right and their teaching must be good because the Holy Spirit shows up. I, I don't think it's a criteria. The fact that the Holy Spirit shows up only points to the fact that God loves His people. Amen. Uh, our character, however, points to the fact that if we're well taught, well discipled, standing firm, that's the matter of character, not the, not the matter of gifting. The Lord showed up because he wanted to touch his people. And then the people of Israel had this temple that they grew to love, that became the center of their worship, and they fought wars, bloody wars, to protect. The tabernacle points to deep spiritual truths. This is all temporary. Our bodies are temporary. Yeshua's body was temporary. The we, we should worship God in a particular system. God is not against structure. Everything, in the, even in our physical bodies, points to the fact that there is structure to everything. But he did not build an institution. And it is made of broken materials. And it was made of the materials that were able to... Bro exactly, broken things were used. Uh, as Orna said yesterday, acacia tree that is tiny and thorny and difficult to work with and has these knots, that's what was used to bring in glory. 
Our brokenness, people's brokenness is used to create tabernacle. People's brokenness is not used to build a temple. We grow to love institutions and we grow to be attached to them deeply. Structure is good, it's blessing, it's God. Institution is flimsy. It's not necessarily bad, but it can turn bad very fast. Uh, in the same way, why I'm talking about that, we make one step and we say, okay, we have a well versus stream of water. Wells are good. They're important. They're important to our identities. They're important to their life-giving. All of those things that I discovered from the scriptures, they're all that. But we can control them. We can decide where we put them, how deep they will go, how we're going to build the walls, what are we going to put on top. It has a human aspect in it, and we can control them. And we can grow attached to them. And we can grow to love them deeply. Stream of water we cannot control. Right. It's just him. And it grows and it goes through all of our traditions and all of our movements and all of our thought processes and all of our spiritual moves. And moreover, when we had this divine exchange with Yeshua, we became those streams of living waters. We didn't become wells. We became the streams of living waters that we can put around into some sort of, we put forth around it because human beings, now we have form, we need to form. Form is not bad, it's not what I'm saying, not at all. But you, you understand, something that we have control over versus something that we don't have control over. And I believe that about our passion, our desire and our devotion, should go to things that we cannot control. Wow. So that's what I wanted to share with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.